Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. morning. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word out of gratefulness to God for giving us his word. At the end of the reading, I will say this is a word of the Lord and we invite you to respond. Thanks be to God. Today's reading comes from Mark 10, 13 through 31. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God for all things are impossible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, thank you, Emily, and uh, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be with you. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Ian. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. And uh, before we jump into our text this morning, I want to go ahead and dismiss our kids who are hanging out in Kingdom Kids today. Uh, you guys can go ahead and head to the doors to meet your teachers. We've got the preschoolers on this side and K-1 through over here on this side. Uh, if your children are lost, parents, we appreciate you uh, helping them out. And uh, it's good to be with you guys this morning. You guys look good in your cold weather get up. Uh, it seems like these cold fronts are constantly coming through on a Sunday morning, and I know that because I get here early to uh, finish, and uh, this is an old building, and my office is drafty, so uh, I know just how cold it's been, but it's good to see you guys in your uh, cold weather uh, gear, looking good this morning, and uh, excited to open up God's Word for us. 
Uh, Well, if last week's text on uh, divorce and marriage wasn't enough for you, welcome back. This week, if you weren't offended last week, I can almost guarantee it'll happen this week as Jesus uh, talks about uh, money and some really challenging things. Um, If you read the Bible closely, uh, especially the Gospels, it shouldn't take too long before you realize that Jesus uh, does indeed say some really challenging things, and he often says them on a frequent basis. And so let me just ask you this morning, like, how, how do you handle that? Like, when you encounter something that is really, really challenging and hard from Jesus, uh, how do you handle that? I have to acknowledge, just look at the pastoral work happening down here in the front. Pastor Rob and Pastor Andrew, you guys cleaned up a mess. Thank you guys so much. Uh, the author Mark Twain once allegedly said this, it's not those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand that bother me. Anybody resonate with that? Uh, See, it's easy sometimes to get lost in the things that are challenging and hard and kind of camp out and what the mysterious is. And then there's other times where the Bible just kind of slaps you right in the face and you've got to deal with it. Like we all just said collectively, by the way, thanks be to God for this word. Is that where your heart is at this morning? Uh, One of the ways that we can try to handle these more difficult parts is to sort of wiggle our way out of them. And uh, this is a famous text where that has happened, okay? Uh, This text is all about entering the kingdom of God. And Jesus gives his famous saying in here that we just heard from Emily, that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom, okay? Now, that's a challenging statement, and we're going to hopefully explain what Jesus is getting at there. But the point that Jesus is making is that this is an impossible thing, okay? A camel the largest known animal in this portion of the world. A needle you would use for sewing, smallest possible opening that he can think of. But sometimes what we do, and there's experts out there, so-called experts, who seem to just make the camel smaller and the opening of the needle larger until it becomes just kind of a hard thing to do, but yet something that we can ultimately achieve. The point that Jesus is making is that it is impossible, though. Some of these theories, by the way, is that uh, there was this so-called gate into the city of Jerusalem uh, that was called the eye of the needle. In order for camels to get through, they had to kind of take everything off their back and kind of dip below the gate and then enter the city. Uh, The picture being, you know, if you got this wealth, you just need to unburden yourself from it and just kind of stoop low and then you can enter in. Uh, The problem is there's no record of this at the time of Jesus. In fact, this becomes uh, popular in the ninth century, so much after uh, the time of Christ. Uh, Other people uh, theorize that camel sounds like the Greek word for rope, and then those people say, well, maybe Jesus has, you know, not like a camel or a rope in mind, maybe a thread, right? Maybe he's just saying it's a big thread that you've got to get through the eye of the needle, which once again misses the whole point. Jesus is saying it's impossible to make this work. It cannot be done. C.S. Lewis mused in the way that only he could in a poem. All things, including a camel's journey through a needle's eye, are possible. It's true. But picture how the camel feels. Then he goes on to give a bloody image of what that looks like. He gets it. That's the whole point. It's impossible for this to happen. If you tried to take it literally as happening, it would cause great damage and devastation. So this morning, let me ask you again, how do you handle hard sayings from your Savior? Are you trying to wiggle your way out of it, or can we humbly sit and allow Jesus to confront us? Because here's the thing, if you caught it in the text, he's doing so from a place of love. He looked at this man, and he loved him, and he said a really hard thing. He's looking at us, and he loves us, and he says hard things. 
And until we can have the humility to receive the full weight of what he's saying, we will not enter the kingdom of God. So this morning, here's our main idea, and then we're going to pray for our time. We can only enter the kingdom of God by receiving Christ's generosity empty-handed like a child. We can only enter the kingdom of God by receiving Christ's generosity empty-handed like a child. Uh, let's go before the Lord and ask him to give that childlike faith, should we? Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would humble us, uh, that you would help us to uh, understand the weight of what you're saying, uh, grasp the truth uh, that is being communicated in this text, uh, but also that we would receive it as uh, loving, as you communicating what is true in love toward us. And Lord, the only way that we can receive that is by uh, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, may you right now give us all in this room ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond to the incredible, extraordinary news of Jesus Christ. Help us to land there this morning in this text, and may your word accomplish its good work in and through us now. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. I want to observe three movements through this text. The first is looking at the dependency of a child, and secondly, the trap of riches, and then thirdly, the economy of the kingdom. Let's begin with the dependency of a child. If you look back in your text, we're going to begin in verse 13. It says, and they were bringing children to him, Jesus, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Now, that seems odd to us, right? Why are the disciples rebuking uh, Jesus for hanging out with children. Well, culturally, we need to get some backdrop here. Culturally, children in this time period were viewed differently than they are today. In this society, children were not viewed with the same kind of sentimental feelings, sensitivity, or tenderness that most exhibit in today's world. Instead, uh, children were indeed regarded as a blessing from God, but they were viewed primarily in the context of how they could contribute to society and to a family. And until they reached that age where they could meaningfully contribute, they were kind of treated as a liability. One commentator summarized that especially for young boys, childhood was an unavoidable interim between birth and adulthood, which is when they could begin to contribute in meaningful ways. Children were the lowest order in the social scale until they reached the age of adulthood. So the disciples here are really just a reflection back of the cultural view of the day. You can kind of get their angst. They're thinking, Jesus, we've got a lot to do here. I mean, the sick need to be healed. There are people who need to be taught. And after all, you're ushering in the kingdom of God. We need to get about this kingdom work, Jesus. There's more important things to do than spending time with these children. They're not going to make the impact that we need. And as always in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are clueless and miss the mark. They fail to see things as Jesus sees them, and they fail to value the things that Jesus values. And that's why Jesus becomes downright angry. Look at verse 14. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant. The only time, by the way, he's indignant in all the Gospels right here. Indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This word indignant, it's a mix of grief and anger from Jesus. And why does he respond so strongly? 
Because children are not only the object of Jesus' love, they also embody all that it means to enter the kingdom of God. Just think about children for a minute. I mean, a child is completely dependent upon others, aren't they? Parents in the room, can I hear a hearty? Amen. Amen. Children cannot help themselves. They need help from others. Everything that they have, they have received. They have not earned it. All the things that this world might deem as impressive or that they might be tempted to take pride in, children do not have them. And that is the whole point. James Edwards summarizes like this, children are not blessed for their virtues here, but for what they lack. They come only as they are, small, powerless, without sophistication, as the overlooked and dispossessed of society. To receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credits, no clouts, no claims. A little child has absolutely nothing to bring, and whatever a child receives, he or she receives by grace on the basis of sheer neediness, rather than by any merit inherent in himself or herself. Little children are paradigmatic disciples, for only empty hands can be filled. Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom, you must enter like that. You must enter with empty hands. If you come with full hands, there's no room for him. You must enter dependent and needy. That is who Jesus receives. Do you have the picture in mind now? Good. Keep it there because Mark is telling a story right after this one that's meant to draw a contrast. Okay? Let's move secondly to the trap of riches. Next verse, verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now you're probably familiar with the story as uh, the rich young ruler, if you grew up in church. Uh, Mark tells us later in the text that this man has many possessions seemingly making him wealthy. Matthew's gospel tells us that he is young, and Luke's gospel tells us that he is a ruler. So you piece all that together, and you've got the rich young ruler. Now, in our world today, a lot of people view wealth and those who have it with skepticism. Many believe that you can't actually accumulate great wealth without taking advantage of other people. This is an oversimplification, but certainly this is a feeling that's in our world today. But in this time period, that's not how wealth was viewed. Wealth was not viewed as an evil, but as a blessing from God. If someone was wealthy, it must have been a sign that they lived a good, moral life, and God was rewarding them. And Jesus is going to show them and show us that this is overly simplistic. Let's look more closely at the interaction. Notice how this man approaches Jesus, he does so respectfully. He comes up and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Have you ever wondered why he's asking that question, by the way? I mean, he's got it all together. He's young, he's wealthy, he's successful, he's a ruler of some kind, and it turns out, as we're going to see in a minute, he's a moral dude. He's morally upright. I mean, this is the kind of guy that you'd be cool with your daughter marrying, wouldn't you? 
Like, yeah, this checks all the boxes. But notice, he still has a nagging sense that something is missing. Despite his pedigree and his accomplishments and his social status, he hasn't found deep down what he's looking for. This is a cautionary tale, friends. Though we don't know all that's going on in this man's heart, this is a warning to all who might pursue the quote-unquote good life as this world defines it as our highest aim. It turns out it's not all that it's cracked up to be. There's a reason why celebrities and the rich and the famous are not exactly the picture of stability or being the most well-adjusted citizens. Jim Carrey said it this way, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Or maybe the Apostle Paul, he says this in 1 Timothy, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, Jesus receives this question from this man. He begins to probe a little deeper. His response is masterful, though we might not realize it initially. Jesus' response reveals two misunderstandings in this young man. The first is that he challenges his conception of goodness. This man presumes that Jesus is a good teacher, but Jesus pushes back that his categories of good might be off. Jesus says, only God is good. If you're calling me good, are you prepared to deal with me in that kind of way? And as we're going to see, tragically, he's not. But then secondly, notice this man assumes there is something he must do to inherit eternal life. So Jesus rails off five of the Ten Commandments. He adds a sixth, by the way, of do not defraud, which I think was insightful that that's a particular temptation for those who were wealthy. But this man responds, I've kept all these things from my youth. He's lived a morally upright life. He has not defrauded others to be wealthy. He has treated others with respect. He's honored his father and mother. He has told the truth. Now, why is Jesus taking him down this path? Well, he wants this man to see, I think he wants us to see, if you are trusting in your own accomplishments and what you've pulled off, if you are trusting in your own morality and even your own obedience and goodness, it's never going to be enough. There's always more to do. The law was not meant to be a checkbox for you to inherit eternal life. It has a different purpose. Now, step back for a minute. Do you see the brilliance in what Mark has done here? Where do we start our passage? Children. Who shows up? A rich young ruler. The contrast couldn't be any further, could it? I mean, just think about the contrast. Children receive the kingdom of God, just like they receive everything else in their life. But this man is seeking what he must do, what he must earn, what he must accomplish in order to reach eternal life. Children who lack everything have all that they need given to them in Christ. And the man who has everything actually lacks the one thing he really needs. And the tragedy is he knows it and he comes to the right person, but he's going to walk away. Let's see where Jesus goes next. Verse 21. 
Jesus, looking at him, loved him. By the way, if we thought this man was being hypocritical, I don't think Jesus would love him. Now, Jesus looks at this man, and he has sympathy. He loved him, and he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus does not become angry. He is moved with pity and love for this man's situation. He sees that he is lacking, and it fills him with sympathy. But then Jesus goes on to tell him something very hard. Now, as a quick aside this morning, have you ever had this experience? Does Jesus ever say hard things to you? Are you ever confronted in love by the Word of God? Because this is sort of what it means to be a Christian. And are we, by the way, in the church, doing the same things to one another? It's not a coincidence that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 says that Christian maturity is marked by us speaking the truth in love. Does God confront you in love? Does the Word of God confront you in love? Do your brothers and sisters have the ability to do so? If not, I would be careful you may not be entering the kingdom like a child. Now, remember the bigger context here in Mark. Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship. Back in Mark chapter 8, he said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He goes on to say, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And two chapters later, here's a living, embodied picture of that teaching. And for this man in particular, the call to follow Jesus meant selling all that he has and giving it away and then following Jesus. This is what repentance and faith would look like. Jesus doesn't suggest, by the way, 10%. He doesn't say, give half of what you have away. He doesn't even say, give most of what you have away. No, what does he say? All of it. Give it all away. Now, does that mean all followers of Jesus are supposed to give all things away? I don't think so. But as one commentator convicted me this week, and I want to welcome you into the conviction, those who want to argue that it's not what it means are precisely the people who probably need to hear that's what it means. Because that means it's got a hold on us. I'll leave the meddling alone for now. Now, notice what Jesus is doing, though. He is offering a substitute here. He's looking at this man in love, and he's saying, listen, leave your money, leave your possessions, leave all of that stuff behind for what? Follow me. Come to me. Forsake everything in order to have me. This is the one thing the rich young man lacks. He lacks Christ himself, and Jesus is inviting him to become vulnerable and dependent as a child upon him. Come back to him empty-handed, not with your hands full grasping onto all of your things. And how does the man respond? Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He walks away from the kingdom He's unable to enter it. By the way, that word disheartened, it also can mean threatened. And he's full of sorrow and grief. And Mark tells us why. Why is that the case? For he had many possessions. Jesus asks him to consider his life without money. 
asked him to consider his life without his possessions. He asked him to consider his life with all the benefits that would come from that, and he can't do it. This, brothers and sisters, is idolatry, and it's enslaving. The irony of it is that this wealthy man didn't really have money. Money had him. It had his heart. It has a tight grip over him. This is precisely what Jesus warns in the parable of the sower in chapter 4 of Mark's gospel. He says, sometimes the seed of the word is spread and it is sown among thorns and choked out by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches so that it proves unfruitful. This is what's going on in the soil of this man's soul. His bank account was full, but his life was bankrupt. He lacked for nothing by the world's standards, but yet he lacked everything in what really mattered for eternity. Now, we don't know what happens to him. We don't know if he ever turns to Jesus in repentance and faith, but if this is it, this is a tragic story, isn't it? Now, before we look at the next section, it would feel pastorally negligent not to pause here for a moment in the midst of our world and our culture here to talk about money and wealth and possessions for a minute. Let me be clear, the scriptures do not teach that being wealthy in and of itself is a sin. Having a lot of money that is gained righteously is not inherently wrong. There are plenty of examples in the Bible and in the history of the church of those who have great wealth and live faithfully to God. But at the very same time, there is a reason Jesus in the Bible over and over and over again, warn about how dangerous money and wealth and possessions can be to our soul. For every one time Jesus talks about the idolatry of sex and romance, ten times he talks about money. And he often talks about money in conjunction with hell. It's one of those things that he keeps coming back to. And the reason why is because he knows that money can be all too easy of a substitute for God. Money, think about it, promises us comfort, Security, status, convenience, efficiency. You can make a name for yourself with your wealth. It can get us into places that we might want to go, and it can seemingly isolate us from some of the pains and struggles of this world. But friends, as a savior, money is a ruthless slave master. It will always leave us wanting just a little bit more and never really satisfied. It's like drinking salt water when you're dehydrated. Seemingly, you're quenching your thirst while at the same time only making yourself more thirsty. Ecclesiastes 5 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. And here's the scary thing. There's always someone who has more than you. There's always someone who has more than you. It's easy to say, this is not my problem because look at all these people. You could literally do that for the rest of your life. It is so easy to think this is not my issue when you can slip into it without even realizing it. You don't have to have a lot of money to love money. So how do we know if this is happening? Well, it has far less to do about the balance in your bank account than it does the state of your heart. Tim Keller is challenging here, but helpful. He asks some diagnostic questions. How do you know that money isn't just money to you? Here are some of the signs. You can't give large amounts of it away. You get scared if you might have less than what you're accustomed to having. You see people who are doing better than you, even though you might have worked harder 
or might be a better person, and it gets under your skin. And when that happens, you have one foot in the trap, because then money is no longer just a tool, it's the scorecard. It's your essence, your identity. No matter how much money you have, though it's not intrinsically evil, it has incredible power to keep you from God. Jesus says, Sermon on the Mount, you cannot serve two masters. You will hate the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and money. So the question is, how do we break the hold of this in our lives? We have to keep reading. As is Mark's pattern, Jesus now processes what just took place with his inner circle, with the disciples. Let's look at the economy of the kingdom. Look at verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. It's the strongest way Mark could say in the Greek. They were like, what is going on here? Now remember, the disciples are operating from the worldview of the day that to have wealth is a sign of God's favor. And so when this man, a picture of morality and wealth and success, shows up and walks away from Jesus, it's disorienting. It's jarring. So Jesus looks at them, he's surveying the response of his disciples and gauging their hearts, and rather than lightening the load, just like last week, he doubles down. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom. And then as we discussed in the intro, he sets up an impossibility in their mind. It's actually easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. But don't miss what he says right before that in verse 24. Stuck right in the middle, he says, children. Now, why does he say children? He's reminding them of what he just told them. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God, full stop. Notice he takes out the riches in that piece. The impossibility of a camel being squeezed through the eye of a sewing needle is true For all people, friends, because none of us come naturally empty-handed to God. None of us come dependent and vulnerable as children on our own. Instead, we have all stuffed our hands full of things that this world offers, and our hearts have worshipped and served all sorts of other God substitutes, whether it be money or something else. For many of us in this room, maybe it is precisely wealth that is the barrier, but listen, Anything that causes someone to miss their need for Jesus is also a camel trying to get through the eye of a needle. What is it this morning that you cannot imagine your life without? What is it if Jesus came to you and said, I want you to give all of that away, or I want you to stop this, or I want this to be mine, that you would say, no, that you would leave sorrowful? that you would be disheartened, that maybe even more uncomfortably, you would be threatened. That's the question we must wrestle with. It's actually even harder than you thought. Welcome. Because listen, friends, if Jesus is not the highest pursuit, if he is not our highest treasure, if he is not the aim that we are running after, we will walk away too when we consider the cost of discipleship. 
If you want to talk economics for a minute, here's the economy of the kingdom. Dick Lucas says it this way. The entrance fee to the Christian life is nothing at all, and the annual subscription is everything you have. The disciples begin to feel the weight of this, and they ask the question that, quite frankly, you and I should be asking right now. Verse 26. They're exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? And then brothers and sisters... Hear the good news this morning. We got there. 28 minutes in. Verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Listen, it is nothing short of a miracle anytime someone with wealth gets saved by the grace of Jesus. But listen, brothers and sisters, it is nothing short of a miracle when anyone receives the grace of Jesus. And friends, God is in the business of miracles. Jesus is in the work of bringing spiritual life and vitality from spiritual deadness and dullness. And by his grace, what does he do? He gives us a new birth so that we might become what? Children of God. That all who humbly believe in him by faith will be saved by his grace. They will enter the kingdom. See, this rich young ruler had the wrong approach and the wrong starting point. He asked, what must I do? Instead, he must ask, what did God do? What is God doing and what has he done? That's the only way to go from a spiritually independent adult to a spiritually dependent child. Now, Peter, our friend Peter, the ever-present spokesman, speaks up here in verse 28. Peter began to say to him, see We have left everything and followed you. Now, what's he getting at? Well, he's feeling that cost of discipleship. The disciples have indeed left behind the comforts of all that their old life would have brought them. And Peter, in this moment, sees this guy walk away. In the back of my mind, I think he's he's wondering, is this worth it? Is this really worth it? I mean, we've left everything, Jesus, we're following you. And I love the tenderness of Christ here. Notice it says Peter began to say this. Jesus interrupts him. He doesn't even let him finish. And he responds in verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. What is Jesus doing? He's looking at Peter and he's gently telling him, listen, Peter, you are not getting ripped off. You're not getting the raw end of a deal. You're not really giving up anything in the grand scheme of it all. You're getting everything. Listen, if you're here this morning and you feel the cost of discipleship, if you feel the weight of what it means to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus, listen to me, it's worth it. It's worth it. Because brothers and sisters, Jesus is worth it. If you're operating from the economy of this world, you are indeed facing a great deficit if you follow Jesus. He is going to ask you to give up all the things that you value and you've stocked your claim in. You're going to be missing out on all sorts of things that people here in this world would call the good life. But in the economy of the kingdom, by forsaking those things, you're yielding a hundredfold. And who wouldn't like a hundredfold return in this room? 
You've lost the things of this world, yes, but look at what you have gained. And by the way, you're not just waiting for this in the future. Jesus says, right now, here's what you've gained. Brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, a people in the church of Jesus Christ, whatever you have forsaken, you have gained back a hundredfold. You've received that right now in the imperfect but yet redeemed, beautiful body of Christ. So as an aside, are you putting yourself in the way of that? And church, are we that kind of people to one another? And yes, Jesus reminds us we will still face persecution, but it will give way because not only have we received that now, but in the age to come, eternal life with him, an eternal family with Jesus and with one another, where treasures in heaven will be there for us, where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in. The economy of the kingdom invites us to leave behind all the things that compete for Jesus and for the gospel, and in return, you gain more than you could ever dare dream about. So what does that mean for those who have wealth in this world? Which, by the way, by the standards globally, is most of us, if not all of us, in this room. Listen to what Paul says later in 1 Timothy. He says, as for the rich in this present age, it's a good little flex right there, by the way. As for the rich, just right now, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good works and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so, they, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Jesus is asking this man to give up all the things that this world would define as life for truly life in him. And ultimately, what Jesus is after is not this man's stuff, nor your stuff. He's after this man's heart. And he's after your heart, too. Because after all, it's Jesus who says, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. But yet, I still haven't fully answered the question, how do we get there? At least, I don't think I have yet. Well, here's what made the shift this week in my heart. This is an observation from Tim Keller. Uh, the reason why Jesus can look at this man and not be angry with him, not accuse him of hypocrisy, but look at this man and really love him is because he can relate to this man more than we might realize on the surface. You see, the rich young ruler in this story is actually talking to another rich young ruler, isn't he? He just doesn't realize it. Nobody realizes it. See, the reason why Jesus can look at this man and love him, and ask him to give away all that he has is because Jesus has done the very same thing. The ruler of the universe, the king of all kings, leaves behind his inheritance, which, by the way, is the universe itself. Riches of the rich. And what does he do? He comes, and he's born in poverty and obscurity. He gives everything away. And why does he do that? so that he can have you and me, so that our hearts can be safe in him. Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler who for our sakes became poor. That's what 2 Corinthians says. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And listen, that richness is that which is truly life, not some counterfeit that this world offers you. So brothers and sisters, if we are going to enter the kingdom of God as dependent children this morning, you've got to come empty-handed and receive that kind of grace. You've got to be able to look 
to the ruler of all things who has emptied himself so that you might have life and life eternal. So listen, those who come with their hands stuffed full will not receive this, but those who come as dependent children, empty-handed, vulnerable, asking for grace and mercy, guess what? You will receive mercy. And listen, friends, if you leave the unimaginable behind in this world, you are not getting ripped off. You will receive a hundredfold, both now and eternal life, something far greater than you could ask or imagine. So friends, remember, Jesus is worth it. He has gone to the fullest extent to buy us back, to redeem us at the cost of his own blood so that we might be children of God. This morning, turn from everything else and cling to our Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have left heaven. You came to earth. You lived a perfect life. You died a substitutionary, sacrificial death in our place. And then you were raised three days later to overthrow all that stood against you and us and your kingdom. And you're inviting us by faith and repentance to come to you as dependent children. So this morning, we in this room confess for the ways that we have acted spiritually as independent adults, where we have missed what it means to be saved by your grace. And we pray this morning that you would awaken our hearts because of the kindness of Jesus to repentance, to turn from all these competing things and to run to your throne of grace that we might receive mercy and help in our time of need. Lord, for those who are trapped in the snare of the love of money and maybe don't even realize it, break that stranglehold this morning. May you lay that bare to them and may they invest in treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in. For those who have been blessed with wealth here in this room, may we not set our hope on that wealth, but may we invest it in things that matter for eternity. May we be good stewards of what ultimately belongs to you. And Lord, for those who do not know you, may you make the incredible riches of your kindness and grace known to them in Jesus Christ. May you strengthen us now in our faith. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.